This is the Wide Awake Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirsten Kazarian. As a child psychologist, I believe the most important part of the work I do is supporting parents by helping them deeply attune to their child and find their own balance of connection, nourishment, and inspiration. To do this, I lean on the practice of mindfulness. Join me in a conversation about raising our kids, raising our consciousness, and trying to stay awake. Welcome to episode 14. Today, we're looking at the latest research on mindfulness and self-compassion from Drs. Shauna Shapiro and Kristen Neff. I was able to attend their workshop at UC Berkeley last month and have been looking forward to sharing these resources with our Wide Awake community. We inform this entire podcast with evidence-based parenting procedures and research articles, but it was so fun to go right to the source and spend the whole weekend learning from these amazing researchers. In this episode, I'm going to review my favorite pieces from the seminar that I think will have the biggest impact on us as parents. You'll see a lot of the information is similar to what we've discussed previously on this podcast, and I find that encouraging for a couple reasons. First, it signals to me that we're on the right path here with what we've been discussing. And second, a little repetition especially from a slightly different angle, is so useful for learning and processing information. So sit back and enjoy this new layer of mindful parenting information that if you've been listening to the podcast, you have laid down the neuropathways to receive. Today we'll be toning and strengthening these pathways. First, we're going to take another look at self-compassion. We discussed this in episode two and referenced quite a bit of Dr. Neff's work. We looked at the harm, self-criticism, and self-judgment cause us and our kids and how to manifest more self-compassion in our lives. It's one of the most popular episodes. Definitely check this out. So at this workshop, Dr. Neff was clear to highlight the distinctions between self-compassion and empathy and self-compassion and self-esteem taking our understanding of this important construct to the next level. Let's first look at the difference between empathy and compassion. If you're with someone and they're experiencing joy or suffering, the same area in your brain is activated, so you experience what they're experiencing. This is empathy. We call these mirror neurons, and it's how we're able to understand and soothe a pre-verbal child. This is why a crying infant can be so overwhelming. Whose neurons will win? You kind of have to use some Jedi skills on your baby here. Empathy is also why sitting with someone's grief or depression can make us feel sad and helpless. Therapists are trained to practice boundaries and self-care because they sit with people in their toughest emotions. If you have any relationships, you're going to be sitting with tough feelings, yours or someone else's. So it's always useful to remember to practice taking a break or doing something soothing afterward to prevent burning out. When professionals get burned out, the field of psychology calls this compassion fatigue, and there's a lot of literature on this. 
But based on the research of Tanya Singer, these researchers think it should be called empathy fatigue, not compassion fatigue. And here's how we can use this information to the advantage of our parenting and our sanity. When our children are small, we help them regulate their physical bodies and their emotions. It could take a long time to get a small human to the place where they can regulate their own emotions, which basically means they can identify them and then manage them appropriately. If you're using empathy alone to support your child or your friend or your spouse, whoever, you're at risk for burnout because your brain is along for the ride of suffering. A screaming baby, a frustrated toddler, or a grieving friend is turning on all the same activity that's happening in their brain on in yours, and your body and your emotions feel the effect. So what do we do? Should I distance myself from my friend when they need me most? Do I finally just ignore my child's distress because I have nothing left to give? We're human, and we've all likely faced moments like this. But the research on compassion offers us a lot of hope. We reach for compassion versus empathy. Instead of feeling empathy for our screaming baby, which can risk making us feel like a screaming baby, we practice having compassion for them. We untangle ourselves from their suffering while staying present and probably a lot more patient. Compassion for suffering is still a positive emotion and lights up the reward center of our brain. Are you feeling guilty that your reward center will be turned on while your child's screaming or your best friend's crying? Don't. And here's why. Empathetic resonance goes both ways. It's not selfish to use compassion or even self-compassion at this moment because your calmer brain will impact their brain state, the, the brain state of those you care for. You will literally be the good vibes. These awesome calming Jedi skills lead our children to the capacity to self-soothe, self-regulate, and have self-compassion. So if you're caring for other people, which if you're listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure you are, give your brain and body a break and focus on practicing compassion. Dr. Shapiro talks about growing what we practice. How can we practice this? Well, we'll start incorporating all sorts of ways for you to add this into your parenting routines in our future episodes, but please start now with our Valentine's Day gift to you, our bonus episode of a loving kindness meditation. Next, we're going to look at self-compassion versus self-esteem. We hear a lot about the importance of good self-esteem for ourselves and our children. However, younger generations can be mocked for their level of self-esteem by older generations. As a culture, we have a lot of mixed messages about what's a good amount of self-esteem. Dr. Kristen Neff pointed out why she focuses on self-compassion in children and adolescents versus self-esteem. Our self-esteem involves us comparing ourselves to others versus self-compassion, which focuses on a feeling of connectedness. With a high level of self-compassion, there's no need to succeed to be special. Whether we feel special in the moment or not, our self-compassion does not desert us, while self-esteem goes up and down with external factors. Self-compassion stays with us on good days and bad days. 
congratulations. Wow, you've been working so hard up for that. Or this is really hard right now. Let's be really gentle with you today. But you may be thinking, uh, hold on, I, ha- I really want my child to care about succeeding. And that's okay. Self-compassion will still get them there. Did you know that self-compassion actually increases test scores and academic performance better than Kaplan? I have a whole episode planned on this topic. I don't think this is a surprise to teachers or therapists, but parents and teens can feel so much pressure academically. Kind attention and self-compassion reduce shame. And reducing shame, which shuts down the areas of our brain focused on learning and growth, is extremely helpful to learning. All our energy when we're feeling shame is routed towards fear-based survival neural pathways. Versus when we're feeling kindness towards ourselves, we're bathing our learning center in dopamine. Remember, what we practice grows. If we're practicing self-criticism, which releases cortisol and adrenaline, that grows too and can lead to anxiety and depression. And what's modeled by us makes an impact. How are you practicing your own self-compassion? So here's another tip for building this. Good morning, I love you. This is what Dr. Shauna Shapiro shared that she says to herself every morning. Pretty radical to some of us, right? She also shared it took her a really long time to get there and she just started with saying good morning. The next piece we're gonna talk about is resilience. We think a lot about this. Is our child resilient? Can they handle what will come across their path? So here's some powerful information about resiliency for us to think about. Dr. Shapiro described the research done in veterans' homes that showed levels of self-compassion were more predictive of PTSD in veterans than what action they saw or experienced. Just let that sink in. Whether or not they had self-compassion was more important to whether or not they had a PTSD diagnosis than what they actually saw or experienced during wartime. When parents, teachers, and child advocates talk about giving kids tools to succeed, this is what we're talking about, right? Something an individual can walk into a really tough situation with, use when faced with a challenge or an obstacle, and come out resilient. Self-compassion. Is this in your child's toolkit? And so what factors affect whether one develops self-compassion? First of all, it's attachment security. The way in which we connected with our primary caregiver and either felt trust or did not feel trust. Parental criticism plays a role in whether someone can develop this and a history of abuse. So what if we're worried about the impact we've had on these things so far? Have we been overly critical? Have our own mental health issues caused us to yell, be unkind, or be neglectful at times? Okay, before you spiral someplace dark, Remember your mindfulness skills and your own self-compassion. 
I'm not messing around in the podcast introduction when I talk about leaning on these skills. I lean hard on these skills professionally and personally. So say something kind to yourself about your parenting right now and know that it's going into your child's self-compassion bank account. I promise. If you would like to learn more ways to build resilience in your child or yourself, listen to episode four of the podcast, How to Stock Up on Resilience. Another topic that came up during the workshop was managing difficult emotions. What happens when we're in the moment with what's difficult? My clients and those of you that listen to this podcast know I'm a big fan of the simplicity of labeling our emotions, and I was so happy when this topic came up. When you feel yourself or see your child become overwhelmed with sadness, anger, or frustration, labeling these difficult emotions helps to calm the amygdala. By saying, I'm mad right now, we're reminded that we're more than the difficult experience. This gives us space so we're not so identified with the emotion. It also helps us to be present with what made us mad. And once we're calm, maybe we can go back and are able to carefully examine this. Go the extra step and help your child identify where this emotion is living inside their body. This is called introception. And what we found is that what we can feel we can heal. Some words here are, let's let this emotion do its dance so it can leave your body. See, emotions will never last much longer than 30 seconds to a couple minutes at the very most if we can stop our minds from ruminating. That is, rethinking about the same upsetting thoughts over and over again, which restart our emotional reaction. When we resist feeling the emotion, it persists. It wants to be heard. So here's an exercise to try next time you feel a difficult emotion. It's called soften, soothe, and allow. Identify and name the feeling and find the feeling in your body. Soften and soothe and make space for the emotion there. Just let it be. Allow the emotion to do its dance so that it can shift. And now visualize this part of your body healing. We'll wrap up this episode with a reminder. Self-compassion can be activating. Dr. Neff used the firefighting term backdraft to label this process. When our own unconditional love rushes into us or our quote-unquote house and the old pain rushes out, there can be an explosion. So continue to check in with yourself as you heal and add self-compassion into your practice. As we focus on teaching our children about their emotions, we can start to feel our own again. And numb hands in the snow, they don't really feel like anything, right? but these same hands can actually hurt when we come inside to a warm house. 
our mindfulness skills can really support us through this process. And by practicing, we're laying out new neural pathways that will eventually become our new normal. However, if you have healing to do, don't go it alone. Definitely put your own team of support into place. And if you have a history of trauma or have been in an abusive relationship, get professional support. Walk slowly and go farther. All right, that is our episode. We touched on a few topics and suggested multiple exercises. So if you'd like to work on these in your practice or your parenting, go to wideawakeparenting.com, select show notes, and pick episode 14 to have all this information at your fingertips. You may have noticed we took a significant break from the podcast while attending this workshop. In an effort to practice what we preach about self-care, we'll be moving to a schedule of every other week for the foreseeable future. We'll try to drop in bonus episodes when they present themselves. This podcast and work brings our team joy, and we want to keep it that way. So thank you for your patience and understanding. Please feel free to reach out and share your thoughts with us and ask us questions at wideawakeparenting.com. I'm Dr. Kirsten Kazarian, and until we meet again, be gentle with yourself, courageous on your path, and let's help each other try to stay awake.